0: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, critic DJ Taylor on literary life in England since 1918, in his latest book, The Prose Factory. DJ Taylor is the author of two acclaimed biographies, Thackeray from 1999 and All Well the Life, which won the Whitbread Biography Prize in 2003. He has written 11 novels, the most recent being The Windsor Faction. He's also well known as a critic and reviewer, and his other books include A Vain Conceit, British Fiction in the 1980s, and After the War, the novel in England since 1945. His journal appears in The Independent and The Independent on Sunday, or at least it used to. (laughs) The Guardian, The Tablet, The Spectator, The Wall Street Journal, and anonymously, In Private Eye. His latest book is The Prose Factory, Literary Life in Britain Since 1918. David, thank you very much for joining us on Little Arms. It's great to be here, thank you. So... This is a big, thick tome, so give, me a, give us a recap of what
1: it's actually about. What's
0: the idea behind the book?
1: It is a big, thick tome, isn't it? It grew and grew. It's the only book I've ever written, I think, where the publishers have said, great, now could you do another 20,000 words? <laughs> <laughs> this is unprecedented, you know, in publishing history, protocol. It's, it's, it does try to do two things, this book. It's a book about taste, the formation of taste. The fragmentation of taste. Why is at various points during the twentieth century and now people have read the books that they read, the influences that are brought to bear on them to do that reading, and the kind of way in which taste is it top down, is it bottom up? You know, where does it how does it work? Given the fact that what we know is the reading public now is multi millions rather than a few thousand which was in the Victorian era. So, on the one hand, it's that the diffusion, the dissemination of taste, how it works. On the other, it's about the idea of literary culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a phrase we, you know, you can read in a newspaper a dozen times a week. But what is literary culture? What makes it up? What defines it? Um, how I define it in the end is, it's the, to me, it's the complete process whereby a work of literature is conceived, uh, matured, written, received, you know, brokered printed, distributed, reviewed, and then how it, you know, is treated by the public. So it's a very wide-ranging and complicated process, again, in which all kind of influences are brought to bear, a lot of them not necessarily literary, of course, because there are commercial factors, there are social factors, mm-hmm. there's even sometimes called a peer pressure, you know, in that you feel compelled to read something. Because you're... But those are the two sort of questions I suppose the book dwells, and around that I've woven this history of English Literary Life since 1918, uh, one of whose central tropes, because I'm a freelance writer who exists entirely by the pen, is how do you make a living out of it? Mm. Can you make a living out of it? Why is it changing in the way that you really sometimes wonder how literary culture is going to be able to afford to remunerate the people at large in it? So that's what it's about, in a rather big nutshell.
0: What is it about 1918, then, that's a significant year
1: for the literary (coughs) world? Well... Obviously, it's the end of the First World War, and to a certain extent, it's a good place to pick up. It's a good place to pick up your examination of literary culture for two reasons. One of them, of course, is that the Great War did produce this hiatus. I mean, obviously, books were still being written and reviewed, and um, a very flourishing time for poetry, for example, the First World War. But in terms of the literary culture that sustained it, there was a bit of a gap because a lot of people were away, uh, either fighting or engaged in war work. And, you know, simply sort of mundane things like the reviewing circuit were non-existent. I mean, I think during the First World War, the Daily Telegraph's fiction reviewer was at the front, and so the books were reviewed by the Golf Correspondent. But it's just little things like that. (laughs) So there's that aspect of it, in purely nuts and bolts, practical terms. There was this gap between 1914 and 1918. But the other thing, I suppose, is that what is interesting in many ways is the period immediately before where I start because from about, I suppose, 1870 to about 1920 was about the only time in British history when literary culture has been the dominant culture. Now, what I mean by that is the, as I said, before, the Victorian reading public was terribly small. <laughs> I mean, lifetime sales of Thackeray's Vanity Fair were about 10,000. It was nothing, you know, for one of the great novels of the 19th century. Then, of course, you had the Victorian board school reforms, which meant that a largely illiterate working class population were now literate and they wanted things to read. And so all of a sudden you've got this huge burgeoning reading public for which a whole new sort of style of literature was bred up to serve. You know, things like the popular magazines like Titbits and Chums and this kind of thing. All created for this newly literate culture. And that lasted about thirty, forty years, but even before the beginning of the First World War, cinema and radio are beginning to make inroads into this. And in fact, if you look at there's some very interesting library statistics from uh, Edinburgh, from just before the Great War, where they're already noting that borrowings are down. And they think that borrowings are down because people want to go and see silent films. So, so even then, it's changing. So post-1918, although books are very popular, although a novel can sell 100,000 copies, it's becoming a minority culture again. But
0: there's also something about the fact that there's a generation of writers who have some of them are writing about the war, some of them Mm. have fought in the war and are writing about it, but even the ones that have fought in the war and aren't strictly writing about it, it's obviously affecting their writing. And so those writers that aren't writing about that sort of thing, the world in that sort of context is not really cutting it anymore, is it?
1: There's an extraordinary... I I don't like using a word like schizophrenia because it has a precise medical meaning, but there is a kind of bifurcation in the responses. You're absolutely right... And if you look at some of those volumes of Georgian poetry, which was the great, you know, one of the great sort of poetry forums mm-hmm. of the period, you get this astonishing disparity between people like Siegfried Sassoon, who are writing really bitter poems based on absolute, you know, experiences, things they have seen and heard at the from the Western Front, and then you've got these Georgian pastoralists who are almost self-consciously excluding any mention of this from their writing and writing these almost completely detached, quietest poems where there's not the faintest hint that anything might be going on 50 miles away from where they're writing, you know, almost to the fact that they can hear the guns booming from farmers. I mean, this is rather weird. and, and, and this, you're, you're right, too, in that the, the legacy of the Great War in terms of literary culture, again, is quite fascinating because there was an enormous, there was a ten-year gap between the war ending and anybody really writing a serious novel about it, because it was just so, you know, how do you deal with something like The Great War? How do you write a novel about it? It's, it's almost important. People shied away from that. But at the same point, you do start getting a genre of novels written in the 1920s which express that fatal disillusionment. You know, The heroes of popular fiction in the 1920s have names like Mark Sabre, and ransom heritage. I mean, it couldn't be more figurative if you tried. So you know that there is this great current welling up, which will eventually sort of. And then, of course, by the late 1920s, you're actually you're getting novels written that prophesy of the Second World War.
0: You mentioned the Georgians. I wanted mm. to talk about who they were, because they. this is the moment when modernism starts to rise. And they're going to be basically displaced by the modernists. But you mentioned Sassoon there, who is one of the war poets, who is writing about those experiences, but also his family and the camp he of the Georgians, Georgia. and he's going to be sort of pushed aside.
1: Well, he, no, he's not. I don't think Sassoon is pushed aside, simply because of the strength of what he was writing and the, um, you know, the way in which he was able to dramatise his experiences on the Western Front. But you're right, Sassoon is very much a, a sort of disillusioned spectator who dislikes modernism, uh, but he's also rather repelled by some of the Georgian excesses too. In fact, his letters to Edmund London from the 1920s are absolutely hilarious, and how you sort of pour scorn uh, on both sides, really, in, in this debate. But, no, the um, the Georgian response to... I mean, I was fascinated. I, I always think that... I mean, a lot of the Georgians are hilarious. You know, J.C. Squire, but the, <laughs> the fabulous little reactionary editor of The London Mercury. Absolutely hilarious. You know, you, you, you read this stuff and you think, how on earth could he actually... But he was... What I, what I also think you have to do, what any kind of literary critic has to do, is to try and see these people on their terms mm-hmm. and in the context of the world they inhabited. And then they don't look so foolish because there are a lot of people who... Thought, and one, of the, one of the fascinations of this book, actually, was reading what the original critics had to say about people like Eliot and the Sitwells because the wasteland was the paradigm, but that was the kind <laughs> of yardstick by which you judged your attitude to poetry. And there is Georgian poet and Georgian critic after Georgian critic who is trying very, who knows that there's something there, you know, who thinks, Eliot is not an idiot, he's not a fool, he's not mucking about, there is something deadly serious here, but I can't grasp it. And so it is really fascinating to read those critiques written in the 1920s of this extraordinary new corpus of poetry and the, and the people trying to come to terms with it and sort of not quite succeeding. I'm Andy Miller and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
0: I also want to bring in the, the significance uh, between the First World War and the Second World War of politics, particularly left wing mm. politics. I mean, we are talking about actually, even though we're talking about the, you know, the modernizers of somebody like T.S. Eliot, mm. T.S. Eliot's actually someone that's politics are quite He's a reactionary. reactionary. Yes, indeed. Um, and there's this start of left wing politics being important in the literary world. Yes. so tell us something about that, but I also do I want to sort of to compare that to you know the big names that are that are right wing but also mm. interestingly there's this the importance of Catholicism
1: as well in, t- in the literary world oh very much so yes. Yeah, so Hugh I mean but we we forget how huge g k Chesterton and hilaire Belloc were in the 1920s and 30s and how they had their constituencies and in some cases their own sort of weekly magazines mm-hmm. in g k chesterton's uh, and it is interesting that i mean people who were there at the time, and I'm sure I think they are exaggerating slightly, say that as soon as you hit 1930-31 then the books pages suddenly go left. A lot of people, this is what the sort of people born in the early years of the century say, suddenly the right is swept off the books pages or has to go to its own little redoubts, you know, like The Spectator or the GK's Weekly or something like this. There was certainly an attempt to create a bona fide left-wing literary Political movement as well as you know in the idea there there was there were magazines like the New Left Review and there was this general sort of sense that it was for the cause and you can actually read reviews of people's poems that were favourable because the poet was fighting in Spain and for no other reason and one always wonders why this didn't work you know why was it that we never had a proper left-wing literary movement here in the same way that certain continental nations manage it. Or even, you know, in the States with things like group theatre and in the definite sort of left-wing thing going there. And one of the reasons, I think, um, quite apart from the fact that this is Stalinism masquerading as literary criticism in a lot of cases and some extraordinary rubbish was written masquerading as objective literary criticism, I think the other reason is that what had gone before, you see, we have this... Literature in the 1920s is, is, is not very political in this country, despite general strikes and mounting working-class poverty. and one of the, I think a lot of the people, quite a few of the people who were attracted to lefty politics and lefty literature in the 1930s had brought so much baggage with them from the 20s, quite a lot of it social baggage as well, uh, you know, Old Etonians who fancied themselves as revolutionary poets, that it was sometimes very difficult to square the two. There's a fascinating parody by Cyril Connolly called Where Engels Fears to Tread, which is about the career of Brian Howard, a fashionable young man a bright young person in the 1920s, who then tried to establish himself as a serious left-wing figure in the 1930s, but the facetiousness of what, well, the flippancy of what had gone before, in some ways undermined all these attempts. And, you know, and, and Connolly makes up these brilliant fake poems. Like, M is for Marx and massing of masses and marshalling of masses, and this and you think it's not quite, it doesn't. However, and and Howard was very serious if you read his diaries, I mean I've read his diaries just on the cusp of the Second World War and it's all sort of, you know, August the 23rd, the end of everything we have hoped for, all our ideals have perished into dust 24th, went to party, came home at 3am, <laughs> and so it's very difficult to harmonise those two things, I think that was one of the reasons
0: Another side of the mm. of left wingness of, uh, of the supposed literary world in, in mm. those days when we go into the second part of the show I want to mm. start to talk about the rise of the bestseller mm. and and how those books were disseminated more widely. But, and one of, the, one of the ways that that begins is the
1: Left Book Club. Well, when you see, the Left Book Club, I would argue, is the most potent attempt to assemble some kind of left-wing literary <laughs> society because although, to a certain extent, it was a communist front, I mean, and the Galands, Victor Galands ran it, and he the people who advised him were pretty much taking their orders from King Street, the Communist Party, HQ. But they built up this wonderful series of regional branches um they attracted people who just like good books who are not necessarily left-wing to go to the meetings and um they built up a real a real sort of almost a cross-party movement and of course encouraged people to emulate them there was a right book club there were other you know there was a liberal book club there were all kinds of mm-hmm. the idea of reading for its own sake but obviously with a political message lurking behind it was more or less generated by this and certainly its influence can be seen in i think you know wartime and then post-war enthusiasm for serious literature as well. So I think the the left book club was a very important um, phenomenon at that time.
0: Let's talk about the publishing world then. As you said, part of the strand, one of the strands of this book is just, I mean, literally how one could make a living as a writer mm. at any period during the during the 20th century. So at this point, we're talking at the moment about the sort of between the wars period.
1: Who was making any money? Quite a lot of people were surviving. You see, even War's elder brother Alec made the point that in the 1920s, when there were six London newspaper, evening newspapers and several dailies, all of whom provided a market for freelancers, and he, as he put it, a short story had to be very bad or very good not to get published. Very good, meaning you know, like James Joyce or D.H. Lawrence. The markets were there, and you could you could there were, there were so many sort of little magazines, all paying not very much money, but you could you could live. In London in the thirties, as a sort of aspiring writer, you could live on three pounds a week. George Orwell, who at one point was living in Wallington, in Hertfordshire, you know, running the village shop. I mean, I, I, I worked in nineteen thirty-seven. He was earning about two pounds a week out of his writing, and he he kept going. You know, he kept he survived on that. It was as easy as, and, and of course, rents weren't so high, and you could it was much easier to survive as a writer in the nineteen thirties. You talk about Virginia Woolf <coughs> as well, and. Mm
0: despite, you know, talking about having staff, was actually living on quite a... She's doing all right.
1: She's doing all right. And the, the dividends as well. This is the great Bloomsbury thing. So you have your private income and then you, and then you sneer at tradesmen. J.B. Arnold Bennett, the tradesman of literature. Bennett had a living to make, you know, whereas uh, Virginia Woolf was rather more... You know, there was always that kind of slight air of grace and favour. Um, you know, there were always people to bring in the... tea. I mean, this is a, a packed remark these days, mm-hmm. you know, to live off dividends and sneer at... The commonality, but I, I was. I, I saw um, I, this, is, I think this is just a personal thing in that I've always sympathized with the hack in literature because some of the greatest writers in English have been hacks. You know, even War was a hack, Thackeray was a hack. They had to write for a living, you know, they and, and they lived to write and they wrote to live, which I, I think is actually in the end probably sort of inspires better books in, in a way. And there's a certain kind of literature that is better than having been written on the hoof with the man waiting to collect the debt in the hall. A lot of Thackeray's early work was written by that like that and I think it's, it succeeds because of it not despite it.
0: And so we've talked about ways in which writers could make money by you know, writing book reviews, writing essays yeah. and stuff mm. but what about novels, poetry what was actually, where were they getting published? I guess I want to talk about literary the magazines, the sort, of, the, the, the sort of world of literary magazines at this point cause, <clears throat> let's talk oh, about yeah. criteria Yes,
1: parts, you I see um, I suppose what one could say, yes there were far more magazines printing stuff Literary stuff than there are these days, and there were also literary magazines for ordinary people. In inverted commas, which there aren't these days. I and mean, there was an extra i mean, there, there was an extraordinary magazine called *John and London's Weekly*, which was just for the ordinary book lover. And you can mock its middlebrow spirit if you like, but it, it had a profound influence on a lot of young people for whom it was their first. Entree into the world of books. I mean, the novelist Keith Waterhouse, born I think in 1928, he used to live a newspaper. Born in you know, very humble circumstances in Leeds, and he found out about books because one person on the round, his paper round, had John of London's, and he would read it. He would take it and read it, and then deliver it a day late, and hope that this was never spotted. And that gave him his introduction to the world of serious books. You know, pointed him to a library. Um, we don't have that kind of thing. Uh, there was another magazine called the Bookman as well, which was a very Sort of stayed and serious kind of, but if you look at it, you know, you do find in the nineteen thirties, F.R. Leavis summing up the year in criticism, and that's so, so. There were, you know, it did provide a forum for all kinds of different people. Now, I don't think we really have anything like that these days. You know, we have general interest magazines that print book reviews, but we don't really have literary magazines like that anymore. That you know, that cater to the that mythical beast, the common reader, which is someone I'm very interested in.
0: This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny, and today I'm talking to DJ Taylor, and we're talking about his book, *The Prose Factory: Literary Life in England since 1918*. And David, you also said that one of the strands of this book was the idea of taste. So, I wanted to start this part talking mm. about what we mean by that.
1: Well, taste is what you like, isn't it? It's sometimes used in um, sort of style terms. Uh, I mean, I think I, I, I forget which. I think it was Matthew Arnold who complained about young men who said they had a taste for poetry in the way that you might say you had a taste for sherry or (laughs) that sort of being rather affected? but it's I suppose I mean it's the corpus I mean you know here am I I've been reading books for decades many decades and I have my taste I have the kind of things I like and I have the kind of things I don't like now where did that come from now obviously a lot of it to do is with influences on me when I began to read books who did I go to for my information who did I go to for my steer and then when I understood about books or I thought that I did how did I begin to decode them? You know, what critical faculties did it? Because, you know, the hilarious thing about this, as you can well imagine as a reader yourself, is that you pick up a book and think that you're bringing all kinds of marvellous objective criteria and you know that it's, I mean, it's personal prejudice and resonance. <laughs> I mean, I've always had a weakness. I've always said that, to me, the best way in which any novel could open, and in fact there is an Anthony Pohl novel called Venusberg that opens like this, the best opening of any novel could just simply be, outside it was raining, the literary editor said because you know that it's gloom and books I mean what could be better what I mean by this all your objective criteria go out of the window when you find the stuff that you like and I know that I have a taste for things that that you know the elevated taste would sometimes not and I remember having a conversation some years ago at Literary Fest with Martin Amos about this where I was just going on about the, the writers I liked, and I named some writers that I liked. And they were all sort of quite obscure, early 20th-century Americans, or English novelists like George Gissing, you know, tremendously gloomy, pessimistic, philosophical novelist. And and, and Martin just said, you have very odd taste in you. And I thought to myself, yes, he's right, but where did it come from? Now, in my case, one of the places that it came from was not having studied English at university. In fact, somebody, I think it was somebody who was interviewing me not long ago, said, and, and this was, it was flattering in a way because he assumed that I'd read everything and he said what is there that you haven't read and I said the canon now that's a shameful admission but I haven't because I was I never had the time I did history at college you see so I, I picked it I mean if I I'm not being glorious, but I pretty much taught myself because I used to sit there in the college library in the English section and I used to sit in the T to W section where there was the complete Thackeray and the complete Virginia Woolf so that's When I got bored with medieval English history, I would pick up Thackeray, or I'd pick up the Gingles' essay, and that's what started me off, much more than having been taught it formally. So that's where my taste came from. Now, it might not be a correct taste in the terms of the canon, but I'm afraid that's where it came from.
0: But that's not how most people would come by their taste. So, first of all, there is obviously English at school Mm. or university, where we are taught Mm. the canon and we can talk about perhaps the people mm. who, who sort of developed that but more specifically the sort of taste makers the people that are the arbiters mm. of this mm. literary culture be that people that are publishing literary magazines people that are you know now popular mm. culture mm. let's talk about who the taste makers were
1: well, the tastemakers were all over the place. At the very upper, sort of, the upper breed of the tastemaker were the Olympian critics like Eliot and Levis, uh, you know, who minted these judgments in grand language and passed them down. You know, they, they stood on Mount Olympus and threw their judgments down and Hoi on the lower slopes picked them up. But then there were many more sort of middle-brow tastemakers. They were the, the, the popular essayists in newspapers. I mean, J.B. Priestley in the 1930s and 40s said that he had an audience of over a million for his essays, and he probably did. You know, and when he broadcast on the radio, uh, it was even bigger. So there was that; those they were tastemakers. But I did quite a bit of research into how people learnt to read. I don't mean in the actual mechanical sense, but in learn to discriminate between what they thought was good and what wasn't. It was amazing how the same kind of patterns reproduced in that, and I and I and I could buy into this myself, remembering how I discovered books as a child and the the number of people who remembered the big glass fronted bookcase in their grandparents front room which you might be allowed to have a look at on Sunday and they would have a most eclectic selection it would have you know might have the complete dickens in it bought from a newspaper promotion which was very fashionable in the 1930s it might have old religious tracts from the 19th century given as Sunday school prizes you know, my grandparents' glass-fronted bookcase had a very a surreptitious, squashed between two hardbacks, was a copy of the original Penguin paperback of Lady Chatterley, which suggested that my grandfather was a darker horse than he sometimes let on. But even when you read, you know, the autobiographies of people, of public figures who were born in absolute poverty, Alan Johnson's a good example, recent, uh, this boy, he was reading a Again, there was the family friend with the big glass-fronted bookcase who offered to lend him, I think it was either a Walter Scott novel or a Dickens novel, and that started Johnson off. And I, I find this is, this is very, very common, this. So there's what you learn at school, there's what is lying around at home, and then, there, of course, there's the public library. Absolutely crucial. In my case, absolutely crucial. The Erland branch of Nor- the Norwich Public Library system in the 1970s, where I used to browse every Friday night, and, and from which my father would bring home books, and you would pick them up. So pull all that together, and you have the common reader of the late 20th century, I think.
0: And there's, as you just pointed out, there's a, a mm. distinction between the sort of highbrow, middlebrow, middle-brow, books. Mm. But, of course, obviously the, the borders between both sides of that sort of overlap a little bit anyway, but somebody is making those
1: distinctions. And the common reader doesn't realise that they're there. Yeah. You see, you and I, here we are bandying these words about it. The big, the huge mass-market readership of the late 19th century had no interest in any of these. They were looking for what they liked. And so all these boundaries blur. And in fact, one of the most interesting, the single factor that unites, I think, Virginia Woolf, James Joyce and Joseph Conrad as they all at one point had submitted material to titbits in the early 20th century. That was how broad this umbrella, you know, at the same time that Virginia Woolf was reviewing for the Times-Royce Supplement, but she still knew that that was where the money was. And so it's very difficult because you're, you're trying, you know, or I'm trying, let's hope critics are trying, to come up with a universal critical language. And we know that no such thing exists, and it never did exist. And there is no way that you can scoop all the potential readers up in your, however sort of generalised, your critical pronouncements. And so, um, you know, you sometimes wonder who you're writing for into that. You know, if you, write a, um, if you write a book review for a national newspaper, who are you writing it for? Who are you addressing? Now, theoretically, you're addressing the 200,000 people who might buy that newspaper, but you know that only a percentage of them will actually read the Guardian Arts review and the Saturday review, and you know that only a percentage of them will read the fiction reviews, and you know that only a percentage of them will get some of the references that you're... So all the time, you're, you know, the pack is being shuffled and shuffled and shuffled, and sometimes you get the feeling you're addressing three or four people.
0: But it also depends it? on who it is that's writing that review, because if you're mm. a writer yourself, mm. you're also addressing the author of that book, mm. your peers, you're also mm. addressing... The publishing company that published that. There's those whole sort of layers of industry that you're also oh, having to. absolutely, absolutely.
1: I'm Natalie Haynes. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
0: You mentioned Priestley. I want to look at a few names of people. Priestley is probably the most famous of these, mm. but you talk about a bunch of people who were in the you know, 1940s, 1950s. Mm. Huge, million-selling, popular people who fell out of favour, certainly latterly, but Priestley is interesting in that he was also hugely derided by the literary establishment at the time, wasn't he?
1: Priestley's fascinating. The reasons... If you go back to the, when Priestley was making his big smashers in the 1930s, it was a mark of your sophistication that you hated him. War, Graham Greene... Orwell everybody all those you know all the rising young writers we know they all without exception hated Priestley and one of the reasons i think they really hated him was because he was so cracked up because he was promoted as the new dickens and there's a faint there's a review by orwell which says i quite like this book and it's quite a reasonable read but when people start comparing anyone to dickens i start frothing and i think that was what did it with priestley what also didn't help was his bluff northern persona that certainly didn't go down well in you know the southern sort of smart sophisticated literary world but it's amazing and and I think Priestley went to his death aged 90 in 1984 with a grudge Mm -hmm. he thought he'd never been taken seriously by the highbrows and it's interesting how his reputation in some ways keeps up more as a dramatist than as a novelist I mean the plays you know Time and the Conways and Spectacles are still every repertory company in the country will do them at one time or another so in some ways he had the last laugh though. and I think an English um,
0: journey is still <clears throat> yeah, English I, mean, journey. I think that sort of thing has become fashionable again hasn't it that yes the regional tour writing, absolutely
1: it, and know. in fact what did Orwell do two years after English journey he went and broke the road to Wigan Pier so there's there's something going on there so I, I, I have a soft spot for Priestley simply because I like one of my favourite novels although I can see it's absolutely chock full of faults is Angel Pavement which again is sub Dickensian but whatever you know, so many, virtually every London novel written since Dickens is suffocation, but I don't mind.
0: One of the people who I'd never heard of mm. and always fascinated me to read about people who were huge mm. tellers at some point and had not never mm. impinged on my conscience before mm. is, is a guy called Hugh Walpole. So, could
1: you introduce him mm. to him? Well, classic example, you see. Walpole, I suppose, would be true to say, the most famous English novelist. Of the 1920s and early 1930s, made an absolute fortune, made money in Hollywood. Novels sold in the hundreds of thousands of copies. The Lake District historical novels was selected by the I think the Daily Mail to cover the coronation of King George VI at huge, vast expense. Knighted, you know, knighted by George, completely derided. You know, post he, he began to be derided in his lifetime, and then has completely fallen off the map since. And in fact. His reputation was almost single-handedly destroyed by Somerset Maugham caricaturing him in Cakes and Ale as the careerist novelist, Olroy Keir, um, which is a very cruel portrait, but does have the you know the bones of something real in it because nobody managed his career better than Hugh Walpole. But um, but no, as you say, completely still has a small following. I mean, there are still people out there. I think read and they do get reprinted occasionally by local firms. But um, no, completely completely gone and dead. You know, Sir Hugh Walpole. Who? Where did, what happened to him? Where did he go? And um,
0: another person I wanted to talk about, mm. although ironically, we, he was mentioned before we started this interview when mm. we were chatting before,
1: is Norman mm. Collins. Oh, yes, London belongs to me. Again, one of the great London novels, mm-hmm. and derives from Priestley, who derives from Dickens. And yet, um, it sold 800,000 copies in 1945. You know, an extraordinary example of what the public wanted to read in the post-war era, in you know, the immediately post-war era. We just fought the Second World War, London is on its knees, you know, the whole country is exhausted and sort of terminally out at elbow. And what do people want to read? They want to read a long, sprawling London saga, clearly indebted to Dickens, set in the late 1930s and early 1940s, full of drama and human interest and communality and people all living in the same, you know, people all lodging in the same house, Dulcimer Street, SE11, I think it is, and um, based on a template that goes all the way back to Dickens as the old curiosity shop, really, one hundred written a hundred years before that's what people want to read mm-hmm.
0: this is an era where yeah. we're starting to see I mean you mentioned Priestley's mm. bluff northern tones mm. but I mean this <coughs> is an era where we're starting to see the emergence of genuinely working class writers I are. mean there had been some people around previously but this is where that really starts to take off
1: it does. It, there had been. I mean, there, was a, there was a big movement in the, you know, the 1920s and the <laughs> 1930s throughout lots of working-class writers. The problem about the 1950s breed, you know, all the, what were known as the northern hooligans coming down from beyond the Trent, is that, I suppose, the way in which the media treated them, and that they didn't differentiate between... I mean, I would argue that there are at least six different kinds of northern working-class and Midlands working-class writer in the 1950s. You know, you have someone like Alan Sillitoe, who was genuine East Midlands underclass... <laughs> I mean, the first words he remembered his mother speaking were the words "not on the head when his father was beating him up. That was how you know those were the privations of his childhood and then you get what was known as lace curtain working class grammar, you know grammar school attending boys immediately joining the bourgeoisie at a very early age. So there are all these different kind of books being written in different kinds of styles, but of course, popular newspapers who look at them just see working class novelists in the way that they, you would say angry young men about a load of people who had nothing to do with each other really at all and were simply an invention of journalists. There's the great problem about all the literary groupings of the 1950s and 60s is they're pretty much made up in newspaper offices and have very little to do with the reality of well, life I, on the ground. I wanted to talk about how the emergence of those writers
0: is changing the publishing world in itself. Mm. But also let's talk about now the the emergence of the you know the paperback the the sort of
1: penguin novels and then mm. the, the sort of cheaper mm. versions of that the sort of corgi and pan mm. yes the the literary world is opening out in the post-war era and it's becoming more commercialized i mean it was always commercialized you know the, the idea of the gentleman in the library is i think an exaggeration there were some absolutely viciously commercial victorian <laughs> publishers but it's becoming more commercialized becoming more mass market too and It's certainly in the, I think it's in the late 1950s that books begin to sell a million copies for the first time, which is a lot, you know, even in the context of the 1950s, that's a lot of books. And what I think we're moving towards at that point, I mean, you know, commercial factors have always been important in literature, right from, you know, and people were complaining in the 16th century that you know, the public were buying copies of Tom Thumb rather than Ariosto or whoever. But I think, come the post-war era, and certainly in the 1960s and 70s, as we move forward a bit, you can see that books are part of a much wider... They always were, but it's much more conspicuous in the post-war era. Books are part of a much wider socio-economic process. Now, what I always use as the illustration of that is the band of mostly male British novelists who became successful in the early 1980s, um, Swift, Amos Minor, Ian McEwan, Salman Rushdie, all that lot, who were still, you know, ruling the roost 30 years later, and they wrote some very good books. I'm not denigrating their literary abilities, but the success which they found at the time was due to other, many other factors than their literary merit. It was to do with the way in which books were being promoted in the 1980s it was to do with the reconfiguration of publishing which was suddenly awash with money so advances went sky high and the books you know people were given quarter of a million pounds for books in the 1980s and it was to do uh, the booker prizes becoming much more sort of fashionable and trendy and media intensive and so a whole kind of generation of successful british writers was created and whose success has continued for the last 30 years And a lot of it, or part of it at least, was extraneous to literature. It was part of a wider socio-economic thing, as well as the books themselves. But then, you know, literature had always been like that to a certain extent. It just became more so, I think, in the 1980s and beyond.
0: is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny and today I'm talking to DJ Taylor. We're talking about the prose factory literary life in England since 1918. And we're going to be going from sort of the 70s to the to the present day now, David, but to finish off. Mm. But let's just take a step back a moment because we haven't really, we've only mentioned the idea of, of universities mm. and their influence mm. on literary culture a little bit. You mentioned F.R. Leavis. What was going on in university culture in the early seventies, perhaps, rather than how it had developed mm. earlier on. Well,
1: how it had developed previously was the extreme reluctance of Oxford and Cambridge to take modern literature seriously. I mean, the the, the great battle is always for let's study some modern text. I mean, J.R. R. Tolkien, who was very influential in Oxford at the pre-war, really thought that English literature ought to stop at 1832. And he had his doubts about Shakespeare, you know, because he was a, an early medievalist. And so it's, it's this fight to get modern books accepted. And there was much more of this when, you know, when the university system expanded and what were then called the provincial... Universities, you know, the new universities of the 1960s and 70s, places like Sussex and the UEA, who made a thing not only of studying modern books but of actually doing comparative literature. Mm -hmm. You know, the UEA had a school of English and American studies which suggested that there was a consanguinity between the two, and they started doing creative writing courses, which of course would have been anathema 50 years before. And you also, I think from the 1950s, there had always been university teachers known in the wider world you know writing for magazines appearing on the radio but it's in the 1950s and afterwards the what's called the media don starts to appear which is the university teacher who makes a thing out of his public performances and um, I suppose exemplified in the careers of people like Malcolm Bradbury uh, the late and David Lodge who's mm-hmm. happily still with us who were people who operated simultaneously on a number of planes in that they were up to they were up to snuff with the latest critical formulations coming across from the continent, and wrote very abstruse highbrow books about them. But they would also be found dramatising novels for television, writing in weekly magazines. In fact, you know the the range of Professor Bradbury's media appearances is, is absolutely jaw dropping even now. You know he was reviewing novels for Punch, and he was reviewing you know the latest structuralist tomes for I don't know the Journal of Aesthetics. So it's a, it's a really wide compass, and this is interesting to me because I'm, I'm not. The point of the, the, you know, what I was interested in here was not so much, you know, the lucubrations of university professors and what Professor X thinks about deconstruction, but what effect this has on the general reader. And the fact is that in however indirect a manner, the general reader was going to find out about this Mm -hmm. through the novelist, Because, you know, David Lodge writes these novelists about globe-trotting academics, and there are loads of jokes in them about French critical theory. And so the interested reader is going to think, well, who is Roland Barthes? You know, what is all this stuff about Derrida? And so, and however marginal a way, there is a kind of tiny bridge being built between the world of high academic, the high academic, and the ordinary reader. And this is interesting to me.
0: Now you mentioned mm. in, in the second part Martin <coughs> Amis, <coughs> Ian McEwan, mm. all of those guys. I can remember there's a number of rather excruciating scenes in um, Christopher Hitchens' biography, mm. H22, mm. where... Yeah. Mark and Ian and Julian and Clive mm, and Salman mm. are all mm. like, you know, out getting drunk in Soho mm. in the in the early nineteen eighties. And one of the reasons you said there's various different sort of economic forces and changes that are going on in mm. the publishing world that enabled these guys, and in the main they are guys mm. to become successful. One of them is the rise of the agent as well in the in the introduction mm. to this book you talk about and um, the Deb obituary rogers. of deborah, deborah rogers. rogers and we mm. can also actually someone else who sadly departed pat Cavanaugh is also mm. one of these mm. one of these people at the same time interestingly mm. how we're talking about one mm. of these male novelists and now we've just mentioned two women agents but what was the uh, the role or, or what do we i guess the myth of what the role of the agent was at this well point? what
1: to me what happened what's been happening for years is that the standard Economic model of publishing has been being perverted, and different parts of the chain have been exploiting it. So, if you regard the writer, you know, produces the product, then you have the primary producer, which is the publisher, Mm -hmm. who produces it, and then you have a kind of facilitator, which is the agent, who takes the product to the primary producer. Then you have the distributor, you know, who's taking it out there and selling it. What happened in the 1980s and 90s was that the kind of ancillary producer, the agent, suddenly got the power. Because of the way publishing was reconfiguring, if, I don't know, um, if Andrew Wiley said he wanted half a million pounds for someone, for something, there was usually someone prepared to pay it. When, of course, technology changed in the early 2000s, then it's the distribution dog that is wagging the publishing tail, whereby the most powerful influence in modern publishing is Amazon, which is a distributor. It's not a book sale. You know, people used to complain in the 1990s that the book-selling chains had too much power. Mm-hmm. People used say, "Oh, Waterstones, you know, they'll screw you over. They'll they'll run you ragged. They'll want they'll want 55% discount. They'll want to." Do... People aren't so much worried about Waterstones now. It's Amazon with its. It, 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 it. So that's what I mean about the um, the economic model can constantly getting. Reframed to somebody's advantage but not the advantage of the person who publishes the book but that's also the, the time
0: of the um the abolition of the net book agreement which was <laughs> the thing of course and
1: absolutely fatal yeah. and even the people i mean i was around at the time and i can remember the people who did it i can remember it happening and i can remember people saying at the time you realize this is just a short-term expedient to bump up your profits and I think quite a few of the people who were there now agree that that was the worst thing they could possibly have done for the future of the serious book. And its consequences lie all over. You see, there is a kind of myth that is often peddled these days. You know, you look at the, the kind of prices you can buy things for on Amazon and even in the, you know, the dump in promotions in high yeah, street Or in Tesco's. Or in Tesco's. Or, uh, and you will get a certain type of facile commentator who will say, oh, this is great, cheap books, it's democracy, it's the demo- democratisation of the book because it's at a price that everybody can afford it is not it means that there are fewer books you know the more copies being sold of fewer books that Mm -hmm. is not democracy that is a constraint on taste to me that's encouraging people to read fewer things less intelligently that that uh, but but that that is the myth that is being perpetrated at the moment and I honestly um it was simply publishers going for short-term gain and I think to the to the detriment of you know, the interest of the reader, actually. I mean, there, there have been lots of advantages in it in that, you know, there, there have, I think, people who perhaps wouldn't have read things in the past are being encouraged to read them. And there's much more kind of debate and interest, I think, in books. But I mean, you sometimes wonder how will, you know, how will there continue to be product if it's so uneconomic for the people who write it and publishing? It's a great time to be a reader, a wonderful time to be a reader at the moment. It's a terrible time to be a writer and it's not a very good time to be a publisher. Never in English literary life has it been so easy to become a writer you know with the creative writing courses and the online forums, and, and never it's been so hard to earn a living out of it and uh, you know this is a this is, it's a very curious paradox you
0: on. mentioned uh, in in the second part the mm. idea that the um, you know UEA teaching creative writing mm. or whatever is a thing that would have been anathema at some point mm. in the past mm. so what changes the, as creative writing like?
1: well I don't have anything to do with any of this so you know I, I look upon it and that, although the UEA is only a mile from where I live at home my wife teaches there but Creative writing courses have done several very valuable things. They have enabled people actually to study the writing of literature at university, which they were never able to do in the past. That's a good thing if you want to do it. It can only be a good thing. They've also provided employment for loads of novelists who would otherwise have found it very difficult to make a living in the current economic circumstances. So the creative writing departments and universities have packed out with, you know, successful, reasonably successful literary novelists in inverted commas that's a good thing because it you know it gives them a livelihood what i feel that it does do on the other side is that however enthusiastic you are and however sort of you know wedded to your task it is part of the process of institutionalization which to me is one of the things that is threatening literary culture in this country you know it's there are times when i look at university creative writing courses and i think civil, it's just another branch of the civil service you know here we are here are all these protocols this is how you become a writer. This is how you meet an agent. This is how you do. It. That is not. I don't. You know that. That to me is not the model that I grew up with, and it's not the model that I personally am happy with. Um, and I think it.
0: There's clearly an issue <coughs> with economics now as well in the There's access to those universities. Yes, and I, and I don't. But you see,
1: I don't know how all these keen and to be encouraged young people. God, I sound about eighteen now. I'm not. Um, i don 't know how they 're going to make a living out of it, and you may argue that ah, but you know a lot of them are just doing it because they want to do it, but I think that there are lots of them who want to make a living out of it and i don 't know how they 're going to you know because the 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 median authorial wage in this country at the moment is about eleven thousand pounds that 's below the poverty line you know how do you in fact some of the one or two of the one of the reviewers of the prose factory, a woman called Laura Freeman, who reviewed it for standpoint, just began with three paragraphs about what she'd earned in the last couple of weeks and how difficult it was and the emails that she got from a magazine editor apologising for the pathetic amount of money I'm able to pay you and you could see that it really hurt and she, she, apparently she had resigned a full-time job in the media to become a full-time writer and she was scrabbling you got the impression of somebody who was scrabbling for half halfpence.
0: Let's um, bundle all these these sort of issues up a little bit to Mm. end with, because Mm. one of the figures that that features all the way through this book is is Cyril Connolly. We've Mm. not mentioned him yet, Mm. and people may be familiar with his... Mm. enemies of promise yes the idea of the uh, pram in the hall mm. and booze and journalism would, and
1: politics and all these all things. of these
0: sort the of things so yeah mm. so let's sort of finish off then mm. talking about a few of these other what are the what are the modern what are the 21st century enemies of promise well
1: they've they've changed you see there isn't the money in journalism anymore and i, I think a lot of young writers would quite like to see the enemy of promise that is journalism so they could work it out for themselves uh, the the enemy of promise, I suppose, is the economics of the. I mean, I, I I suppose in some ways it's a rather disillusioned final chapter. But I I looked at all the factors that impinge on the life of the modern young writer, and I worked out that nearly all of them were actually enemies of promise. Because if you you know if you go and work in a university creative writing department, I mean it's great because it gives you a living and you're you you're working in a kind of an atmosphere where people are talking about books, but it's not getting your books written. And the number of create, you know, the number of people working in universities who I know about, and they you will say, "How's the book going?" And they'll just look at you and go, "I have no time. I spend my time, you know, assessing essays and chatting with my colleagues." And I get to the I get to the you know, vacations, and I have to teach summer schools and or mark exams. And, and you think, "How are these great works going to be written in the future? So I, I, I don't know. I mean, what the the number of serious? You know, I don't like using these distinctions, but you know what I mean. The number of serious. Writers in this country make a living out of writing novels could probably be counted on the fingers of two hands. And in fact, I remember making this point in the Guardian a couple of years ago. And two days after the piece came out, I met a very distinguished novelist whom I won't name that you know filmed Booker Prize. And I met him at a party, and he said, "Oh, loved your interview in the Guardian." He said, "Who are these people?" And I said, "Well, X, I thought you were one of them." And he said, "No, no, I make my money from films." And that was scary, because I mm. thought if he can't make a living out of writing fiction, then who the hell can these days? I mean, what, where do we go? Where, what's the situation? What can be done about that? What can be done is that, well, at some point, and I don't know when it will happen, at some point somebody will come along and bust the Amazon monopoly, because it always happens. Monopolies are always there to be taken, and someone will do it. Someone will reconfigure it. I don't know how, but it will happen. Amazon will go or diminish at some point. The tide will roll over them and wash them away. That will happen. But
0: Amazon um, are not only the main distributor now. Amazon is obviously now, we were talking about tastemakers. Oh, yeah, Amazon yeah. is obviously they're one they're of doing the key the tastemakers.
1: They're doing the but at some point, that will end. And the other thing is that, you know, you wonder, and I write a book like this, sorry to personalise this again, but I write a book like this, and I think, who the bloody hell is going to want to read this and talk about it? And then you go to a literary festival, and 80 people turn up, all of whom have read, you know, know about some of the people in the book, want to discuss the issues, have read Stefan Collini's review it in The Guardian, wish to discuss this, and you think to yourself, there is a literary culture, a proper literary culture out there, it still exists, there are still people involved in it, and so um, perhaps I'm gloomier than I should be well literary festivals although then Mm. you know
0: perhaps we could you know we Mm. could obviously talk about there's an issue at the moment Mm. about literary festivals Mm. paying its speakers Mm. but literary festivals i think are almost an, an interesting symptom of the of this thing where you know it's almost like people watch celebrity chefs on the Mm. tv but don't necessarily cook literary festivals are booming Mm. as an event for authors you can you can spend your entire year talking at literary festivals but are those people that are going to the
1: literary festivals reading the books i don't mind they're out there they've come to see me this is great you're meeting readers or potential readers and then every so often you come across the person where a you know where a piece of mentally and you can see that in that person a piece of blue touch paper has been lit, and that makes it all worthwhile. Which I suppose sounds slightly cliché, but you know, you, someone will come up and say, "I just read such and such," and he says such. As you think yes, you know, this means something to you in a way that all the tinsel-tassled crap that's on the television every day doesn't doesn't register. And you know that that flame has been lit, and you know all the it was all it was all worth it. And there is still that kind of level interest out there
0: well we were going <clears throat> in a sad direction but that's a good positive no, I'm, point I'm, for us to no, I went on. to
1: the, I was at the Bath Literary Festival a couple of weeks ago and as I say I, I thought Who, who'll be here 12, 20 there was 80 people there all of whom were absolutely up to snuff with the things I was talking about and I was very pleasantly surprised so it, it, it's, it's good it's positive
0: so I've been talking to DJ Taylor and we've been talking about the Prose Factory literary life in England since 1918, <laughs> which is out now from Chateau and Windus David, thank you so much. Thank for you. That was
1: enormous fun, Neil. Great. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
1: This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM.
0: The show is supported by 89 Up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms.
1: You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.